We pray now that as we come to the Word, any who know not Christ as Savior would be drawn to that light for those who know you, that we might grow in the Word, grow in our faith, grow in our walk with you. This is our cry to you now as we come to consider carefully the words of Scripture. Through Christ we pray, amen. The Bible is not a simple book, nor is it a short book. The Bible's considerable length assures that anyone who wants to know God's Word will have to make it a lifelong study. It must be an ever-present companion, or we simply lose the breadth of Scripture's message. But the depth of the Bible's content presents an even greater challenge. Its depth enables false teachers to step forward and to claim that they can unlock Scripture's secrets for us. They prey on people's unfamiliarity with the Scriptures and our natural thirst to discover hidden truths. And in response to this danger, religious authorities trying to help don't do any better as they step in claiming that they alone can be trusted to interpret the deep meaning of Scripture. For example, 1233-34 at the Council of Béziers in France, the Roman Catholic Church decreed that it was unlawful to translate or read the Bible in a common tongue. The church had this all figured out as Latin was the official Bible, the, the translation in Latin was the official Bible, that quite conveniently then, uh, Latin was a dead language studied almost exclusively by well-educated clergy. So the Bible was read in churches across Europe, but the people did not understand what was read. Many times we've learned that even the priests themselves that were reading it did not know what they were reading. The scriptures were sounded, but people could not be really trusted to understand it. This was really best, Rome insisted, because it kept the common person from misinterpreting the Scriptures. Only the Pope, only the bishops in conversation could rightly interpret the Scriptures. This was the thinking. Well, even though similar decrees such as this one uh, continued to be issued across Europe for centuries, it didn't stop heretics, as they called them, from daring to read the Bible in their own language. It was being translated, and those translations would be passed around. And uh, This was a great concern to the Roman church. The Dominican monk, Etienne de Bourbon, spent much of his life tracking down these so-called heretics who dared to read the Bible in their own language, dared to take this authority in a sense, into their own hands. In frustration, he once reported, and I quote, just think back on that time. He said, I have seen some lay folk so steeped in their doctrine that they could repeat by heart great portions of the evangelists, such as Matthew and Luke, especially all that is said in them of Christ's teaching and sayings, so that they could repeat them without a halt and with hardly a word wrong here or there. How scandalous. 
common people who must never be trusted to rightly understand God's words, reading them on their own and even memorizing them. Well, fast forward 300 years. In 1521, Englishman William Tyndale got into an argument with a fellow clergyman. His colleague insisted that it was more important to know the laws of the Pope in Rome than to know the laws of God in Scripture. This statement rightly angered Tyndale. And he was reported to say this, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to, do, to know more of the Scriptures than you do. 1523, Tyndale journeyed to London seeking permission from Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall to translate the Bible into English for all to read. But when Tyndale reached London, he was told that that was not going to happen. No plowboy would have freedom to read God's word on this bishop's watch. So the following year, a London merchant supplied money for Tyndale to make his way to Germany, where he began to labor in translating the Bible into English. And however, when, when Tyndale's first copies were shipped to England, Tunstale secured as many of them as he could and had them burned at St. Paul's Cross in London. Then he took that a step further and sent agents to Germany to acquire Tyndale's Bibles in bulk there in Germany and to burn them there before they ever saw the sea and made their way to England. The very gall of Tyndale to believe that a plowboy, a young, uneducated farmer, could read, understand, and obey the very words of God. What did not seem to dawn in any of these religious authorities was to ask what God thinks about it all. Our recent consideration in Deuteronomy 6 would provide a clear enough answer all by itself. Remembering back to chapter 6 verse 4, where God says to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You get the sense that God thinks his words are out of reach of the common person? They're to adorn their homes and to be talked about parents to child. Every parent in every tent of Israel's encampment at that point is tasked with teaching the Holy Scriptures to their children. It's not, go find a priest who can tell you what the Scriptures mean. And nothing wrong with that, and I think that probably happened quite routinely. But that's not the point. The point is you take the Word of God. You can hear that Word. You can understand that Word. You can teach that Word to your children. In verses 17 and 25 of that same great chapter, 
Moses says, you shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And it will be righteousness for you if you are careful to do all his commandment before the Lord our God and he, as he has commanded us. You get the sense in reading this that it is less a matter of understanding the scriptures and more a matter of obeying them. That's really what's at issue. And this sense is confirmed repeatedly in Deuteronomy, which brings us to chapter 30, where Moses begins to sum up the book. And we find here in verses 11 through 20 of Deuteronomy chapter 30, we find two truths that demand two responses from God's people. The first is God's word is clear and accessible. Obey it. It's clear and accessible. Obey it. Verse 11 of Deuteronomy 30, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. This commandment, that is all of God's covenantal law given at Mount Sinai to Israel in that context, certainly in our context, the entire Bible, this whole law of God, this commandment is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. That is, it's not too difficult to comprehend or too distant to possess. Verse 12, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? So what's the question that's being addressed? How on earth can human beings know what God thinks? How is that possible? Maybe we need to ascend into heaven, seek audience with God, and bring the truth back to earth. No, says Moses, we don't need to ascend into heaven to retrieve the word. God has come down to us. He has come here. Well, then, maybe where? Maybe, maybe we have to go to the ends of the earth to cross the sea to retrieve it. Some corner of the planet obtained from some guru somewhere. No, says Moses, verse 13, neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? No need to travel to the ends of the earth to retrieve it. We have the very words of God etched on stone tablets in our language. Hey, Moses has taken some time here to kind of work through this. This is all obvious. You don't go to heaven. You don't cross the sea. It's right here with you. But he wants us to face this. You have the word of God. It's accessible to you. And I want you to take that word for parents even to be teaching it at home conveying that message, all of God's people handling that word that's right here with you. Indeed, verse 14, this word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Remember Deuteronomy 4, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Notice the phrase there in verse 7, a God who is so near, so near that he communicates his, his desire, his commands, gives us his light. And I think perhaps there's a connection here with verse 14. This word is very near you. And it reminds us of Frame's observation that we've looked at before. When we encounter the word of God, we encounter God. 
When we encounter God, we encounter his word. God's word and his personal presence are inseparable. His word indeed is his personal presence in some sense. Whenever God's word is spoken, read, or heard, God himself is there. These words convey his truth. They convey to us who God is. We see him in his word. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is, you can know it by heart. You can recite it with understanding. You possess this word. Now notice there in verse 14, there's a bit of a a phrase here that can definitely trip us up when it says that so that you can do it. What does that mean? It's not saying that you have the power in yourself to obey the law. It could be taken that way, but that's not the meaning. In fact, chapter 31 will settle that point. God will say to Israel, you will break my law. It is a given that you will break my law. So it's not saying that, and certainly not saying you can earn your salvation by obeying my law. This would be contrary to the order that Scripture always presents. God redeems, and we respond in obedience. It starts initially with repentance, just the obedience of repentance and turning to Christ as Savior, but then we begin to obey the law in the power of the Spirit, not in the power of the flesh. This is not in conflict with the rest of Scripture when it says this, that you can do it. In fact, we saw this in Deuteronomy 6, this idea being kind of sketched out here. There's not a lot of color to it yet at this point. But he says, when your son asks you in time to come, Moses writing to Israel, when, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You see it there. It's not, what, 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 what does the word of God mean? What are these commandments? What is the significance of them? The answer is not, so that you can obey and earn your salvation. But he starts with, first, we were delivered. We were redeemed. Then we obey the commands of the Lord. We have the strength to do so by his grace. So the point is clearly here, not Israel's innate moral capacities, I think we could say it this way. What he's saying here is God's word is not rocket science. It's not something you can't grasp. It's not something that you have to go somewhere to possess. It's not so deep that it's impossible for you to obey. It's not rocket science. It's right there. Right there in your heart. Right there in your mouth. It's obeyable. When God said to Adam and Eve, do not eat from the fruit of this tree, they knew exactly what God meant. His word was clear, it was accessible in the sense that it was understandable, it was humanly obeyable. God's commands are not deep, complex philosophy that only the really smart people can figure out and only the super saints can obey. That's not the case. God's word is making that clear to every one of us here today. Moses says, no, they are right there, in your mouth, in your heart, calling for your willing obedience. So the uneducated plowboy 
can grasp God's word sufficiently to live a life of loving obedience that pleases the Lord. And I think that answer is conveyed to us right here. It's very clear in this text as we apply it. But by way of application, we have here then a significant doctrine of the study of God's word in Scripture, known, uh, we would speak of it maybe simply as the clarity of God's word. The formal doctrinal word for this is Scripture's perspicuity, which we probably didn't use this week in talking to anybody, did we? It's kind of a crazy word, but that's how we speak of it formally. The perspicuity of Scripture upholds the notion that ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known, believed, and observe for them to be faithful Christians, writes de Young. I think this is nicely put. It is clear. Ordinary people, ordinary means, can know what we need to know of God's Word. I think this is what Tyndale was driving at in his plowboy comment. We do not, it's not rocket science. God's Word is clear and accessible. Now, looking at what uh, DeYoung has written here, that simple statement, we would tend to think as a church, who on earth would disagree with that? Who would disagree with that statement? Well, there are many theologians that do. And they do so on a a number of lines. I'm going to mention just three that are fairly common here, just that we might think about how some take this idea and in fact, deny this very idea. Some would say, first of all, that God cannot be known by human language because he is so far above it. God is so far above human language, there is no way that human words can convey who God is. Now, how does that hit you? I mean, it kind of sounds very pious, doesn't it? It's talking about a very big God who cannot be understood with words. But that notion, <clears throat> that notion actually comes from hell. That is precisely how God has chosen to be known, is by human words. God can be known by human language because he has chosen to make himself known that way. No one is arguing that human language can tell us everything there is to know about God. Of course, we realize that human language has its limitations. But God has determined to make himself known in his word. A second line of objection to the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture are those that would say something like this. We need the magisterium to interpret Scripture. That is, we need the Pope and the bishops working together to convey to the church what is the truth of God's Word. This was the position that the clergyman with whom Tyndale argued, this is the position that he took. Good grief, lead people to read the Bible on their own? They will come up with all kinds of harmful ideas. And what do we say to that? Yeah, they will. They will. Some of them will be very, very destructive indeed. But the answer is not to filter biblical interpretation now through church authorities. Is that what God was saying to Israel in in Deuteronomy 6? Teach these things as you walk along the road, as you lie down, as you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses. That's not what he's saying. God's word is perspicuous. It is clear enough to common people using ordinary means to understand what God has said. 
In other words, our loving Heavenly Father is not seeking to confuse us. We don't need to travel to Rome to have the Bible properly interpreted, nor do we need to go to some other city in the world. A third line of rejection of this truth are those that say absolute truth is undeterminable because everyone filters information from his or her own perspective. There's bias there as we look at anything, and no one has the right to judge another's perspective to be wrong. And this leads, it's often spoken of as that in that Hindu tradition, you've heard the account many times of the six blind men who stumble upon an elephant. And they start to touch the elephant and try to figure out what this is, and one puts his hand up against the stomach of the elephant and says, well, an elephant is, is a wall. And another grabs the elephant's tail and says, well, the elephant is a, is, no, it's a, it's a rope. The other's grabbing around his leg and says, oh, you guys are all wrong. And elephants, I can get my arms around. This is, it's a tree trunk. And so the moral of the parable is that we should never judge anyone else. We all have a different perspective. We all see it a different way. No one's actually wrong. We're all right in our own way. We're all wrong in our own way. And that's just that. We can never really know. What they don't ever say is that maybe a seeing man came and told the six blind men that they, were, they had an elephant and explained what an elephant was and in their blindness they may not fully understand it but they certainly are enlightened to get a lot closer to the reality and a lot closer to the truth. But all of that aside, we know that we honor a God who speaks he has told us, so to speak, that it is an elephant. He speaks, and if we listen, we will know the truth. Yes, imperfectly. In the analogy, the blind men remain blind, but with much greater knowledge than to draw our own conclusions in our own blindness and to speak ill of God that way. God speaks, and if we listen, we will know the truth sufficiently. But before moving on, from that, let me offer just a few qualifiers concerning the clarity of God's Word. So we're saying that these arguments against it all fall, but also we also want to be careful. We are not saying that every passage is equally clear. Some passages are harder to understand than other passages. Some passages will remain beyond reach of the church's full comprehension until kingdom come. As I work my way through the Bible on an annual basis, I have come again at the end of the year, end of uh, the Old Testament, end of the New Testament, and i got to go through Zechariah again. And uh, every time I'm thinking, I, there is so much here I don't know. It's not the same as reading the Gospel of John. So we're not saying that every passage is equally clear. There are things that are beyond us in Scripture. Let's make that clear, and, and we, must, we must acknowledge that. Secondly, not every passage is equally clear to all believers. Those who walk closer to God, those who give themselves diligently to the study of Scripture, will generally understand some passages better than believers who are less mature, less diligent, or less capable of deep study. 
And it's also true that on occasion a well-schooled student of Scripture may have a blind spot that even a young person does not have. But there is a place for teachers. So while we reject the magisterium being the interpreter of Scripture to the common man, it does not mean that there's no qualification for teaching. And we need to be careful of those who teach particularly within the congregation. And Fathers and mothers need to be careful that what they're teaching is not over their head. That they are grasping what they understand of Scripture. But to give ourselves to that and to know, yes, there are qualifications to faithful teaching. Thirdly, not every passage is necessary for eternal salvation. Every letter of Scripture is the inspired Word of God and necessary for life and godliness. But not every passage must be fully understood in order to be saved. Scripture is clear enough, thorough enough for us to fulfill all that God demands of us along life's journey. And it is sufficient to bring us to salvation. But with those qualifiers in place, let us focus finally on the fact that the clarity, the perspicuity of Scripture assumes our responsibility to obey it. Moses could not be more clear on this point in the book of Deuteronomy. We think of the Apostle James who said, Do not be hearers only, but be doers of the word. Or he speaks about, do not only be hearers of the word, he's assuming there the clarity of Scripture. He's assuming that we can understand it. And by doing, he assumes that the point of God's word is not merely to know it, but to live it. And that leads to the next point, verses 15 and following. God's word leads to life or death. Choose life. Verse 15, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. God speaks, we either listen and obey, or we go our own way as Adam and Eve did. One way will lead to life, the other to death. With respect to life, verse 16, If you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Notice again that obedience to God's word is more than external conformity. Obedience is at the core. Loving fidelity to God is its essence. So he speaks there with respect to life and of course again uh, under the conditions of the old covenant here as he speaks of their prosperity in the land. But then negatively, verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. God's word leads to life. Choose life. And if you've not come individually to a saving knowledge of Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're living in rejection of God's will. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. He has spoken. His word is there. It is accessible. His commands, His counsel, His offer of life is there. Have you embraced it? 
or are you actively rejecting it? If you actively reject that call, I'm confident that you're pretty miserable. C.S. Lewis said this well, and he said, when we want to be something other than the thing God wants us to be, we must be wanting what, in fact, will not make us happy. Those divine demands which sound to our natural ears most like those of a despot, like a king that's against us, and least like those of a lover. In fact, they marshal us where we should want to go if we knew what we wanted. I think it hits so well on the very fact that we don't like the words of God. We don't embrace the commands of God, but we really don't know what the alternative should be. We may think so for a while, but life constantly proves us wrong. God's words are life. Turning from those words is always a trip down the path of death. What we want, Lewis argues, is to know and love God. That's what's deep within our soul, connecting us to our original creation. But sadly, unbelievers are desperately trying to find happiness in false gods, which leads only to misery and ultimately to eternal death. God has not given us His commands to make our lives miserable, but to rescue us, to show us the way that we sense deep within we need. And we find so easy to reject. But perhaps today, your soul is crying out, I want out of this misery. I've had enough. I want deliverance from my guilt and sin. The good news of Jesus crucified and risen is the truth that is right there for you to grasp. This is, as we read it earlier, what the Apostle Paul was seeing in the connection. He sees Deuteronomy chapter 30 and this idea that the Word is right there with us. And he sees the connection to the fullness, the pointer to the nearness of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is the Word now for us on this side of the cross. The righteousness based on faith says that you can just hear the echo of Deuteronomy 30. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. You don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to go to hell. What does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth. In your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Because, and here it is. It's this straightforward. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Now, that last verse there, verse 9, is not saying everything that there is to say about salvation. But he's boiling it down and saying it comes down to this. A turning from your own rebellion and sinful ways to trust that Christ died in my behalf to pay the penalty of my sin and that his resurrection life is given in forgiveness and eternal life to those who trust him. It's a choice. Choose death or choose life in God's word. Back to verse 19. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. 
What does that look like? Loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. And we under the new covenant with new promises that are eternal. Repent. Change course. Choose life. Jesus for us speaks these words of life. Obey Him. Love Him. Walk in His ways. Hold fast to Him in faithfulness. That will be the choice of abundant life. This was then in some sense the point of Tyndale's plowboy comment. And this quest This conviction cost Tyndale his life. Repeatedly evading capture in Germany, he was betrayed to the authorities one day in 1535, kidnapped, imprisoned for 16 long months on charges of heresy. Finally, authorities just didn't want to know what to do with him and decided to just dispatch of him. October 6, 1536, he was tied to a stake, strangled to death, and his corpse was burned. His last words were, O Lord, open the King of England's eyes. God answered that prayer to a degree as just two years later, King Henry authorized production of the Great Bible, an English translation which rested largely on the work of Tyndale. And here we sit, comfort in warmth, without fear, to read an English translation of Scripture. The ability to read it, the ability to study it, there it is and how many forms and how many translations on our devices and in bound volumes on our laps. We are... In a manner speaking, Tyndale's plowboys. The clear, accessible words of God in human speech have awakened our spirits to eternal life. And today God's word remains our authoritative, fully sufficient counsel, teaching us what is true, distinguishing it from what is false, teaching us what is good, And distinguishing it from what is evil. Teaching us what is beautiful in the Christian life. This passage also certainly warns us against the assault of Satan. That entices us to reject God's words and to turn to false gods and false sources of security. By God's grace, may we encourage one another to resist these allures. To choose abundant life by holding faithfully to God's word. To know that this word has been entrusted to us. It's a long book. It's a deep book. But we now on this side of the cross have the Holy Spirit of God to teach us this word. To instruct us in it. And what a privilege we have as a community of faith. To acknowledge this, not just doctrinally, but in our practice. This word is not only just given and entrusted to us as individuals that we might draw close to God privately. It is given, it is entrusted to us as a church to honor it, to pass a budget next week that allows us to continue on 
teaching, equipping, understanding the Word of God, living our life together, everything that we do, honoring that Word. Through the power of the Spirit of God, it's a community project as we have teachers that instruct, as we get together for small group Bible studies, as we read the Word in our daily life, learning this Word and thereby choosing life. Let's pray. We are thankful, Father, for this word entrusted to us. And just pause here to give thanks to, for those who have given their lives for, to this cause. How spoiled we are, how forgetful we are of those who have paid the ultimate price to grant us the privilege to be here with English translations of Scripture. Our task, Lord, is not to find it because it's illegal, not to memorize it because we may not see it again for months. Our challenge is just to pick up what we have and read it. To give ourselves to the discipline of knowing your word and thus choosing life. Lord, convict us and deepen us and teach us the words of Scripture. How much we take for granted and how it harms us. And Lord, for those who do not love the words of Scripture, who do not love your commands, who have not yet come to see that it is our life, Lord, we pray that you'd open their eyes to this truth. You'd help them to see it. They'd see the beauty, the good, and the true in your written words that point us to the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.